Welcome to this Elite Learning Podcast CE activity. Our goal is to bring you speakers, information, and ideas to educate and challenge you to grow. Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. Hi, and thanks for joining the Mental Health Meetup. I'm Jonna Emil. I'll be your host today for episode two. And joining me again is the great and amazing Dr. Sally Miller. So happy to have you again. And last time we spoke, we spoke a little bit about things around anxiety and COVID and the pandemic and kind of what we're seeing. So we're going to continue that conversation some more today. But before I do that, Sally, do you want to introduce yourself to our audience? I will. Well, aside from being great and amazing. (laughs) (laughs) What else do you need to be? (laughs) Which is tough to live up to, but I will do my best. Uh, so, um, so my name is Sally and I am a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. I've been a nurse practitioner for almost 30 years and for the first 25 of them worked in a variety of outpatient and inpatient settings from the more medic, medical uh, medicine, internal medicine perspective, I guess I could say. And then five years ago, focused in psychiatry. So that's where I've been for the last five years. I have been a speaker with Fitzgerald Health since 2001. So over 20 years with FHEA. Uh, I am a clinical professor at Drexel University in Philadelphia. And I am a fellow of the American Academy, fellow of American Academy of Mm -hmm. Nurse Practitioners, but most importantly, a clinician and a teacher. Those are the things that I think are most important to me. Fantastic. Awesome. So last time that we spoke, we spoke again about anxiety, right? We kind of set the stage for that. What is anxiety? What's going on? Why are we hearing about it so much and seeing about it so much? Not just in the healthcare worker arena, right? Like nurses, therapists in that way, but just the general public. So we talked a lot about that. And I want to transition us into maybe talking about how to manage that personally and even as a practitioner or a provider who's taking care of patients. And so one of the things that I wanted to ask and get your input on is if there's any type of best practice recommendations in the event that someone's having an acute episode. So I'll give you an example. If if you are working with a colleague, right, a nurse or another practitioner who you recognized was absolutely experiencing some real anxiety, they're having the symptoms, they might be having an acute episode, or maybe just a buildup of it. Are there things that we can do in that moment to help like not kind of go over the edge, so to speak? There are. There are actually several best practices that are advocated and are really helpful. People just have to do them. You know, on a side note, I, uh, in, in this conversation, I do want to share with you that before going into mental health, like I said, I was, I was internal medicine, uh, very cut and dried. You know, my world is columns and lines, and I really wasn't a, a, a real believer in therapy and non-pharmacologic interventions and mm. deep breathing and all this. I mean, I, you know, I'm not proud to say it now, but that just, just wasn't the way my brain worked. And I didn't yeah. know anything about it and I didn't advocate for it. When I did my mental health postmasters, part of my clinical involved spending a certain number of hours with a therapist, not learning how to be a therapist, heaven help us, because I have no <laughs> skills when it comes to being a therapist, but learning what types of therapy there are, what types are best matched to certain things, and so that I could refer patients appropriately. 
I was paired with an excellent therapist. It turned around my whole appreciation for that discipline. So when I suggest these things that I'm going to suggest, I'm sure that there are lots of nurses who are just like me thinking, yeah, okay, yeah, right. Number one, I can't do that and it's not gonna help. (laughs) Believe me, I mean, it really does. And you just have to try it. You know, we, we live in a pill society and everyone seems to respond to a pill for everything. And listen, there are pills that are necessary for some things, but not not necessarily and not this. So to come back to your question, if somebody is at work or anywhere, if it's at the end of the day, they're at home, if, if you are having an acute anxiety episode or anxiety attack, what everyone will identify is the loss of control, the inability to focus. They, they try to, you know, they go through a trajectory. They try to think about something else. They pick up some mindless thing or task or turn on the TV they try to rein themselves in and they can, and it just escalates. So one of the really valuable best practices techniques that a good therapist will suggest is trying in a very simple, straightforward, one track way to refocusing yourself. So even if, you, if you're at work and you just, yeah. it just gets there and you, you just can't anymore, you just can't. You, of course, you make sure the patient's safe, right? If you're with a patient, you have to make sure they're safe. Grab another nurse. Everybody has at least one friend on a unit. We like to think anyway, right? First patient is safe. And then you just go into the lounge, the bathroom, anywhere, and just find a very specific thing to focus on. One thing that many people don't realize is that you can use multiple senses for this. One thing that has been extremely valuable, and I get good feedback when I finally convince someone to try it, is writing it down. Journaling is the contemporary term. Just start writing. Write whatever. Whatever is coming to mind, usually the thing that has you being anxious, just write. It doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't have to be for publication. No one else ever has to see it. It can go in the shredder when you feel better. But just channeling that nervous anxiety into a different modality for expression can be really helpful. Another thing to focus on is the sense of smell and the sense of touch. Mm. Some people find it really helpful to just get into that quiet, even if it's to get in your car, you know, whatever, get into that alone space and aromatherapy. Again, you know, there was a time when I would have thought, oh, yeah, right. But really, like focusing your sense on a particular, you know, a relaxing, calming. There are many excellent ones to choose from out there. And I think there's a whole business. But get, get a scent that is calming or calms you and just focus on it for a little bit. Just close your eyes and focus on that scent. Another thing is sense of touch. If you are an animal person and it's and it's possible, like you're, it's at the end of the day, you're at home, just sit next to that animal, touch it, let it touch you, you know, stroke. Just yeah. in some way, try to focus on a very particular outlet, capitalizing all the senses of your body. And that can get people, you know, it's not a perfect cure, but get right. them past that moment through that time they just regain. And, and if you can't do anything else, truly breathing, just good old fashioned deep breathing exercises, just focus on a breath, on a count, on some very specific thing to get you past that so that you can then finish your day, do what you have to do, and then go home and decide if this is a one-time thing or 
maybe I should talk to somebody, which means yes, you should. Right. Right. As you said, if you're having that thought, then it's a yes. Absolutely. So that's really good advice. And I feel like easy things that we can accomplish in the moment if we're starting to have those feelings. Now, so you mentioned that you've used some of these with your patients, which is awesome. And in episode one, we talked a lot about underlying causes and just even swimming upstream to make sure that you're addressing what the cause is of, you know, the issue that someone's experiencing or the manifestations they're experiencing. What is the, I wonder if you can talk to us about the, the kind of arc of a patient or individual, right, who is experiencing anxiety or they're, they're, they're having these manifestations and you start with these first kind of non-pharmacologic techniques to help and they're helpful or, or maybe they're not. And then we transition to things like medications and, and things like that. What, is, what does that look like as far as taking care of a patient and deciding, you know what, now we have to get to the point that this is something you should be medicated for? So I mean, that is, that's an excellent question, actually. And often therapists, the therapists call us the medicators. No. They're the talkers. So we have, this, we have this dynamic back and forth relationship. So one general principle is that if there is a clearly identifiable cause of anxiety, then the non-drug therapies should be first. Got it. Unless it is just such a profound manifestation that they, they can't even, you know, go out the door or can't go to work. And then it's usually a combination of therapies. But I mean, we see this all the time, people going through a bad divorce, you know, relationship is ending a major financial upset. Um, people right. uh, maybe sometimes adolescents have had to move and it, for them it's traumatic. Like if, if there is any identifiable thing, Truly, the best practice is to work with a therapist on how to manage that thing. And although you don't, I mean, medicators medicate, it's what we do, it's the discipline we know, and we just tend to do that. But, but one of the most important aspects of prescribing is to know when it's appropriate and when it's not. Right. And so I have on numerous occasion had a patient come to me expecting to be medicated. And at the end of the interview, I'll tell them this just isn't the answer for you. I mean, it happens every day. In fact, I have a student working with me, a precepting with me, a psych MP student. And last Wednesday, which was our clinic day, it seemed like every patient I was <laughs> advising them to see a therapist. We kind of laughed about it because that's not usually the way it goes. And it's not the experience a psych MP student expects, but it was just the best thing to do for this certain number of patients. On the flip side, sometimes a patient will work with a therapist and they just can't get the level of relief that they need to be able to go through their day, to, to manage that social or occupational dysfunction. And then we need to use medications. The goal is always as a bridge. The goal is that the medications will be used with a, a time frame in mind. You know, I always tell these patients, I don't want to have a long-term relationship with you. We right. want medications to help you just get to that place where you can be most receptive to the non-drug strategies that the therapist will work with you. So sometimes that happens. A, a therapist, typically we ask the patients to work with a therapist at least for a month if they can, okay. and they just feel like they're still not getting the level of remission they need, then we augment with medication therapy. On the other hand, sometimes there are patients for whom there is no identifiable cause. And mm -hmm. if there's not, 
then that more often than not is primarily a biologic, a truly dysregulated neurochemical concentration. And then they are the people that will probably need medication for the long haul. Like medication will be part of their world. Not forever. In psychiatry, one of the first things people ask you is, do I have to take this forever? Is this always going to be part of my life? And the goal is that no. I mean, always the goal is no. But but for the patient who really doesn't have any identifiable reason for the anxiety, it's just pervasive and part of their life, chances are that that is biochemical and they will need medications for the long haul to learn how to manage it. Now, sometimes even those patients, once they get on medicines, they're just in the best, they're the best vessel, they're in the best place to work with a therapist. Sometimes a therapist really can help them learn strategies to manage their anxiety so that sometimes we can, we can trial taking off the medication. So it is a continuum. There's a trajectory. There's something for everybody. No, that makes sense. And what are some of those medications? What are some of the medications that we would use like for a client like this? So there are there are lots that are that are used with other medical conditions as well or other psychiatric okay. conditions. And then there are a few that really are specific to anxiety. So if if we're talking about acute anxiety attacks or a right. a you know a more short-term phenomenon. So the first thing we have is the benzodiazepine, which is kind of a dirty word these days. Yeah. There is a high potential for abuse. It is addictive. The withdrawal can be physically very dangerous. And so there is a real hesitancy to prescribe them. And we should be very respectful of these medicines because they can be dangerous. They can be addictive. And so like every highly effective medication, there is a potential downside it just seems like the more effective a medication, the more the potential consequences of it. So it's a risk-benefit assessment. You, you have to decide risk-benefit. For some people, they really do need a benzodiazepine in the short term just to get them through this week or this day or this, or this thing or this something. Some people, they tend to be nervous Nellies all life, but they're fine, but they are absolutely terrified of getting on a plane terrified, have avoided it their whole life. But now maybe their son or daughter or somebody's getting married, they have to fly across the country, they have to get on the plane. Give them a benzodiazepine. I mean, it's that's what it's for. They're probably not going to become addicted if they take one on the flight there and one on the flight back. Benzodiazepines really are pill form alcohol. They directly suppress the sympathetic nervous system response. They suppress the racing heart, the, the, uh, the, the impending, like, I feel like I'm going to die, the shortness of breath, the tremulousness, they suppress it like no other medication. And so for someone suffering from panic attacks or very acute phenomenon, they really are the best option. They are not intended to be a long-term solution. Nobody ever intended for patients to take Xanax four times a day for the rest of their life. But for the short haul, it is helpful in the appropriately selected patient. If you have concerns about abuse or misuse, well then, yes, we can't use that. We do have other options for short-term anxiety. They're not as effective, you know, so you have to set those expectations with your patient. But another commonly used drug for short-term anxiety is propranolol. Marketed as mm. Indorol, it's an old school beta blocker, meaning it blocks beta adrenergic receptors it blocks their response to epinephrine. 
So epinephrine binds to a beta receptor and activates the sympathetic nervous system. These drugs block that response. And so they can help people. Sometimes we have people who, you know, they don't need to be medicated every day, but perhaps they just got a promotion. And part of that promotion is that they have to lead a team meeting, you know, twice a month and they are terrified. Public speaking, like they almost didn't take the promotion because of that. This is someone for whom a dose of Inderol an hour before that meeting, they can get through it. It may not be a glass pond. Again, it's about setting expectations with a patient, but they can do it. They can have their meeting and they can have their promotion. And so we have helped attenuate that social occupational response. Um, another option sometimes that we will use is an antihistamine, you know, a first generation antihistamine that crosses the blood brain barrier and can have some calming properties. Again, for the intermittent need when you don't want to use a benzodiazepine, or maybe it's just not bad enough to use a benzodiazepine, you can use that as well. So we do have these short-term, these options for the short-term isolated PRN use, and that's really the hierarchy. Benzos at the top for the most profound, really disabling symptoms, beta blockers and antihistamines for those people that need help, but it doesn't quite rise to the level of the benzo, or perhaps they have had a history of addictive disorder or substance use, and we just don't want to use a benzo. So that's the acute phase. On the other side of the spectrum, people that truly do have anxiety disorders, and like I mentioned in the last episode, there's very different anxiety disorders. There's generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety disorder, panic disorder, PTSD, so for those, for many, not all, but for most of them, we start off with the SSRI because they tend to be very well tolerated. They're safe. You don't get physically addicted to them in the sense that it's dangerous to stop them. And they're, they're well tolerated. So they're a favorite among prescribers just because they're, they're safe. And SSRI on a daily basis. Now, it's important to recognize these are not meant for acute anxiety episodes. It's not like we say, you're terrified of that plane, take an SSRI an hour before the flight. This will not help you. And whereas if they have anxiety on a consistent, you know, regular daily basis, these medications can be very helpful. There's a lot of SSRIs out there. Most of our listeners are probably familiar with them. There's, you know, fluoxetine, peroxetine, sertraline, Citalopram, Citalopram, uh, Fluvoxamine, there's one for all occasions. And they all were originally designed as antidepressants and they all help with depression, but they all also have unique little side chain actions that the others may not have. And one of them is paroxetine, which is marketed as Paxil. And that really is the best SSRI, in my humble opinion, when anxiety is the primary treatment target. For people with generalized anxiety disorder, for instance, or long-term social anxiety, Paxil can be, I've had a lot of luck with that. I've been extremely successful in taking people whose generalized anxiety disorder was so pervasive that uh, wouldn't get a driver's license or wouldn't get a job or didn't want to go back to school. And that medication on a daily basis allowed them to do that. So these aren't drugs that reverse your acute anxiety. These are drugs that over time help suppress it from manifesting. So an SSRI would really be first choice. For people that don't respond to that, 
The next level is what's called the SNRI or serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. So now you're involving another neurotransmitter that's implicit in anxiety. That would be the norepinephrine piece. And there are a couple of them on the market and they really are all equally efficacious for people that either don't respond to an appropriate trial of an SSRI or for some reason don't, don't want to take one. But another one for anxiety that I really do appreciate the opportunity to mention here is called Boosperone or it's marketed as Boospar. Boospar is a medication that's not like any of the others we've discussed. It is a serotonin partial agonist, and it was designed for generalized anxiety disorder. It was designed for people that have generalized anxiety disorder, which is chronic and can be disabling, and for whom the SSRI or the SNRI just doesn't control symptoms. Some people's symptoms are just that bad, and the SSRI won't do it. Buspirone on a daily basis, used appropriately as prescribed, can have an unbelievable impact on suppressing chronic anxiety. Now, out in the world, both of mental health and in primary care, this medication has a reputation. It's got a bad one. It, it's, people think it doesn't work. I've heard my own peers in psychiatry say, oh, it doesn't help. I don't use it. It's useless. It doesn't do anything. And it's because they're using it inappropriately. I mean, one of the basic rules of pharmacotherapy is don't ask a medication to do what it can't do. I mean, if it's, don't ask it to do what it's not designed for. Because Boospar was originally designed as an alternative to a daily benzodiazepine for people with really significant anxiety, it just evolved into trying to use it instead of a benzo for everything. And it's not. So again, if you're terrified to get on that plane, boost par an hour before the flight is not going to help you. But if you have generalized anxiety disorder that is really chronic and disabling and doesn't respond to the SSRI or the SNRI, boosterone can have a huge impact. I, without exaggeration, I'm not being dramatic, I have seen it save people's lives. I, I had one patient whose anxiety was just so pervasive. I mean, she, she was cachectic. She had a body mass index down to under 15. I mean, she wasn't wow. eating. She wasn't sleeping. I am convinced she would have died. And we used, we, me and my personalities, we used Boospar. <laughs> and I'm, I mean, it saved her life. Now, people with anxiety like that, they're never going to be just all, don't worry, be happy. I mean, anxiety is always going to be a part of their world. That's, that really is their biologic makeup. But we can markedly improve it and improve that experience of daily life they have. So those are the medications. I mean, and there are people I feel compelled to say few and far between, and we try everything else first, but there are those with panic disorder where their life is characterized by unanticipated and unprovoked panic attack and unexpected. They never know where. And sometimes people do need to be on a benzodiazepine chronically. But thankfully, it's a very small subset of the population. Yeah, that's excellent information. I learned a lot about those medications. And you said something about patients maybe not wanting to, right? So if it does, in fact, get to the point that medication therapy really is the answer for this patient in order for them you know, to, to cope and, and to, to be able to live with this appropriately, right, in their life, 
and they don't want to take a medication, right? I imagine that would be a barrier to, you know, their own success, right? And what can what what can NPs do, therapists? I mean, how 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 do you help to break that down? It is. It is a huge issue. People refer to them as crazy pills. You know, I don't want to take crazy pills. I don't want to be on this stuff. People worry about it being on their their record uh, because there is such an articulation between or I guess I should say among the um, the pharmacists, the pharmacies, the insurance companies and the prescribers, you know, there are these collective databases now where when I get a new patient, if it's a controlled substance, especially, I have to query a database and I can see what else they're on. If I have a patient who transfers to me from another provider, or maybe they have an existing primary care provider, when I go into my prescribing software, I can see everything that they're on. So some people worry that others will have access to the fact that they're on a mental Mm. health medication, and they worry about how it could impact insurability, employability. Mm. They worry about driver's license. Uh, in in some states where, where people want to have a concealed carry permit, they, they worry about the eligibility for that. And these, you know, I understand these are not entirely unreasonable fears. I mean, the, the correct answer here is that there are privacy laws. I mean, we have HIPAA. This information should not be shared. But on a practical level, I do understand the concerns about it getting out. What I do tell, if that's the problem, I do tell people I have never, ever seen it happen where some unauthorized or some ancillary entity has access to their record and it inhibited in any way. So I understand the fear, but in 29 years of prescribing, I have never seen it come to pass. So I, I, as you know, as best I can, I try to reassure them about that. The stigma about taking any crazy med or mental health medication You know, we all have different personalities and the way we approach patients. And I tend to be very down to earth and point out that, number one, they're in my office. There's a problem. I mean, obviously, they have a real problem. They want help or they wouldn't be in my office in the first place and that they can feel enormously better if they take these medications. I do reassure them that I don't prescribe indiscriminately, and I don't. And some, there are those that do, you know, there are, there are some mental health offices where that's what they do. You know, they churn out the meds, you know, in all fairness to them, that's what we know. And that's what we're taught. So of course we think that is the answer, but I, I feel strongly that it isn't always. And so I, I really don't prescribe unless I think it's the thing to do. And I will tell people if I don't have anything to offer them. So I, I try to give them that assurance that I wouldn't suggest it if I didn't think it was really going to be helpful to them. And then finally, the, the last two things that sometimes really seem to help are that, number one, this the plan isn't for the rest of your life. Yeah, The, the plan is to help you bridge through finding a better way to manage these things. And, um, and then, of course, the, the last example that sometimes will hit home is this. I mean, this is a biological phenomenon. You have hypertension and you take medicines to lower blood pressure, do you think twice about that? If you have an overactive gut, you take medications to slow that down. You know, if your your heart is pumping too fast or beating too fast and you take medicines for that, do you see anything wrong with that? In this circumstance, you have an imbalance of chemicals that are making you feel this way. 
and we can normalize that. So I don't, I really don't see it as any different than treating any other biological anomaly that can decrease health. Such a good point, Sally. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for that. And again, I appreciate you joining me today for this amazing dialogue as we continue to talk about all things mental health, anxiety, and more. So thank you again, Sally, for joining me. My pleasure. And thank you everyone for tuning in. We hope you'll join us for another discussion and talk about how we can put this into our practice for ourselves and for our patients. I'm John Emil on behalf of myself and Dr. Sally Miller. Thank you so much for joining us. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to and learning from this podcast CE activity. Did you know that you can listen, subscribe, and share elite learning podcasts on podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, and Google? Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform today and never miss a new episode. To earn your certificate, follow the prompts to complete the CE activity.